Welcome to the Mind is Infinite podcast, a platform for discussion on the things not discussed. What a journey it's been these past few weeks. I hope you're taking care of yourself and making sure that even though it's appropriate to take breaks, you are not disconnecting from the purpose and progress of corrupt systems within our society. With that being said, I want to continue this project more than ever now, so I hope you are taking away all the important information in this podcast and applying it to your everyday lives and discussions. Now sit back, take a deep breath, and enjoy. Critically acclaimed Disney film The Princess and the Frog was released on December 11th, 2009, and knowing young me and my obsession with Disney, I most definitely watched it not long after that. A film like The Princess and the Frog really changed the image of classic Disney princesses. It was the first black princess on the big screen. Now for me, at a young age, I didn't really realize how much of a milestone this was. But representation doesn't really pop up in a six or seven year old's mind, so it would make sense that I just enjoyed the movie for what it was. But looking back, it's really crazy how seeing someone who looked like me on the big screen was such a taboo. Like the ideal standards of a pretty princess was never black until the 21st century. And even now in 2020, having people of color run the screen is still a slow pacing commonality in the Hollywood world. According to IndieWire in their article 2019 Diversity Scorecard, out of the top 100 movies of 2019, 34% featured a lead or co-lead of color, compared to 27% in 2018. Which is a growing number, yes, but it's definitely not fast enough, and not as high as white actors and actresses. UCLA's 2019 Hollywood Diversity Report says that only 2 out of 10 lead actors in film are people of color, with 80.2% of white actors and actresses representing the lead role, compared to whopping 19.8% of actors and actresses of color representing the lead role in 2017. So those were a lot of numbers, but what exactly do they mean and how much of an impact do they have on people my age today? I talked with a few of my friends who will identify as a minority in different aspects about the statistics I just told you, and also some questions about media representation and how that's changed throughout the years of our generation. I think directors and uh, producers and writers are doing a better job at incorporating people of color in like movies and shows, but I, I don't think they're doing the best that they can. I feel like, because colorism is also a really big problem, mm-hmm. and I feel like it just it feels weird. I feel like they're just doing it to make people happy so they get like a light skinned girl like Zendaya or someone to play. Like whenever they put like Hispanics in shows, they like whitewash them. Mm-hmm. Like that bitch from On My Block. She's not even fucking Hispanic. She's white. That was my childhood friend Gabriella Arias, who is a rising senior at Research Triangle High School and identifies as a Hispanic female. I asked her how exactly she feels about the progress within the TV and film industry as a whole, and if it really reflects the progress we've seen in society, either in politics or just social media. The character from the Netflix original On My Block that Gabriella was talking about was Olivia, played by Ronnie Hawk. Now Ronnie Hawk is a white American, so why exactly would they allow her to play a Hispanic female character? Throughout Hollywood, we'll see the whitewashing of Hispanic characters, male or female, being completely disregarded throughout history. West Side Story, for example, had the classic character Maria played by white American actress Natalie Wood. Even movies like Scarface and The Mask of Zorro have famous white characters playing Hispanic characters and being rewarded for it. So this has been happening for a while, 
making the representation of authentic Latinx characters very rare within modern Hollywood. I then spoke to another friend of mine, Elijah Leake, who is a rising senior at Durham School of the Arts. I asked him the same question, but he tapped into something that was really interesting, which was blockbuster films that had an entire cast of people of color influencing how film studios looked at their characters in future feature films. I think where it really started picking up was with like Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians, where we saw like a whole cast of like people of color. Whereas in like movies, it'd be like one or two over here and over there. And it wasn't, it didn't really impact the movie as a whole. And I think when seeing the success that's come from those movies, it's, I guess, kind of encouraged studios to kind of take bigger, I guess, risks in that kind of vein. As of 2018, Black Panther is now one of the highest grossing superhero films in the United States, up with movies like Star Wars, The Force Awakens, Avatar, Titanic, and Jurassic World. The difference between Black Panther and those blockbuster films specifically is that it not only consists of a nearly all-black cast, but also celebrates and accurately and respectfully glorifies African culture. Black Panther, that was about like Pan-Africanism, like celebrating African culture, which is beautiful, but like at the end of the day, we should also allow a black person or an Asian person or or, or a Hispanic person to just be a person while also acknowledging that there's different levels to their being a person. Really, what I see is like, for people of color, like we've had to force that change, if that makes sense, which is why I don't necessarily see that as progression. Like it shouldn't get to that point where we constantly have to like fight for something to happen. Like. It should just be human nature to want equity and to see, like, people of color prosper and to show them in a different light, if that makes sense. This is Katie Owusu. She and I had a conversation regarding not only the entertainment industry and their role in representing people of color, but also the pressure that's been put onto shows, specifically cartoon shows, to make sure their characters are represented accurately. I don't know, like, if I can touch base on this, but, like, in connection to just, like, the reemergence of like the Black Lives Matter movement, like you see all these people who took up like black roles. You know what I'm talking about? Like the voiceovers, mm-hmm. like the Simpsons, and like the guy who played Cleveland and all of that. And like all of a sudden, they're just like denouncing their roles for the sake of like, oh, they felt like it was more appropriate for a black person to play that. Big Mouth was also another cartoon show that decided to change the voice actor for their character, Missy who was seen as a mixed girl with a black father and a white mother. The way I see this new phenomenon of respecting the character is, why did it have to take black people being murdered under the hands of racists for you to finally accurately represent us on TV? It's also very crazy how this movement started with a lot of people supporting to defund the police and hold law enforcement accountable, to now people changing street names, clothing lines, and countless other attempts to distract us from why we started this movement in the first place. To protect our people. I think that sometimes the progression that we should have or the progression that we have brought up to this point, like, you know, the making uh, Juneteenth a holiday, like a celebrated holiday, at least this year at, at some point, I feel like it's forced. I hate when, I hate to say it, but it is forced. I feel like all the progression that we have had up to this point, or at least in the recent weeks, was forced. So, This is Christopher Fowler. 
a recent graduate from Durham School of the Arts, and now a freshman at UNC Greensboro. In our conversation, Chris went beyond the idea of representation in TV and film, discussing representation within education and how that affects young boys who are discovering their sexuality and overall identity. Growing up, especially at a public school, when we learned things about like, you know, or actually high school, when we learned about things like sexual education, there wasn't representation within the queer community. So a lot of younger boys or boys that are younger than me now don't know how to go about keeping themselves safe. Um, I also think that, so I, I, I do think that representation within like textbooks and, you know, school videos is very like essential to growth. Um, I also do think that when it comes to media, obviously there needs to be, you know, some diversity in the media, but I don't think there needs to be selectivity or selectiveness when it comes to casting the diverse people that you want to include. I don't think picking and choosing how a person fits your physical character should, you know, affect anything, if that makes sense. Thinking about inclusivity within sex education and what is shown as safe sex is also a very valid topic regarding how people of color are represented within media. The first time I ever saw gay sex being explained with authentic intention to educate rather than shame was in Pose, the FX original that released in 2018. In fact, Pose is one of the first TV shows I've ever seen with complete representation of not only people of color, but trans people of color, gay people of color, polyamorous, you name it. Hearing trailblazers like Angelica Ross describe how Pose provided so much light to the trans community within television is in many ways the progress we need to continue seeing. And last but not least, I had the opportunity to speak with Jessie Foday again on the topic of representation. You probably remember her from my second episode, which hopefully you've already listened to by now. Um, when we're younger, I feel like we're not necessarily aware of the ratio of representation that we see on TV because we're exposed to so many like white casts, like white actors. Um, we see those few people of color and like our brains not being able to conceptualize yet like that there are disparities um in like the ratios of like casting like we see those few uh characters of color and like we just accept that and we accept that the majority of these of like the representation will be white and we just like it just becomes so normalized that like we'll have that like black friend on tv and we'll have that like yeah like the like the one like token black character and so we just Kind of like that becomes our base level, if that makes sense. I asked Jessie how she felt the progress within the media for representation of people of color correlated to the societal progress we've seen happen in our everyday lives. I'm going to end this section with her answer, which I think sums it up pretty well. I feel like shows about um, definitely translating this uh, progress and like just choosing to um, portray the stories of more people of color and like like minorities at the same time I, I feel like it's become part of the entertainment you know um where like they don't have a black character just because black people exist or they don't have a gay character just because gay people exist like the gay character or the black character is like its own uh like like plot point you know and is like a hook to like bring people in almost I think in some ways people are going like industries are going about it the wrong way um and like 
it's almost yeah it's almost like adding a violence like making a show gratuitous just like to um increase views you know um like they're adding these minorities to increase views like and not because they want to not because they should but because it like brings them in more money to some extent so i think there has been some progress but i also believe the industry like the industries run on money and if viewers who are giving them money are saying hey we want more diversity like they're gonna put they're gonna make shows more diverse but it's not necessarily because of progress because it makes their like pockets fuller Now that you've heard different perspectives on what black and brown representation means to people of our generation, I want to give you some historic insight, just to prove that this has been an ongoing battle for our people for decades. The film rendition of the historical novel Uncle Tom's Cabin would have the first black actor as a lead role on the big screen in 1914. Now although this was a changing point within cinematic history, the significant change within representation for black people during this time came after the blatantly racist and Ku Klux Klan supported film The Birth of a Nation, which became possibly the most anti-black film in American cinema. Although we shouldn't give The Birth of a Nation any credit within our history, it would lead to the first film industry specifically for the positive portrayal of African Americans in film called the Lincoln Motion Picture Company. Through this film industry, it was ensured that the black community would not only address social issues going on at the time, but also make sure that the black actors and actresses were portrayed in a positive light, compared to how often they've been portrayed in the film industry in a negative way. The first film that was produced through Lincoln Motion Picture was called The Realization of Negro Five Ambition, and was released mid-1916. Following that, the first Hollywood film with an all-black cast would be produced in 1929 and directed by Paul Sloan called Hearts and Dixie. Hearts and Dixie would not be received well, however, because it continued to play on the obedient slave stereotype, in which the black community at that time wanted to stray away from. Nevertheless, Hearts and Dixie did begin a very long journey for black film. And to end the episode off, I want to provide you a list of all my favorite and most necessary films with either an all-black cast or primarily people of color. Moonlight. Now, if you haven't seen this film already, I'm going to assume you've been living under a rock or you're homophobic. Having seen this film, I think, maybe six times, I've found something new to love about it each watch. Moonlight takes place in three parts. Chiron, the main character, as a young child, then Chiron as a teenager, and then adult Chiron, living the life he resented all throughout his child and teen years. Moonlight does such a beautiful job creating a portrait of a young black man living in a world he felt he would never belong in, unless he fit the image of the typical tough and hard-hitting black boy we've seen portrayed and enforced throughout society. The cinematography encompasses the pain we see grow in Chiron, and the hard-hitting portrayal of being gay and black in America in such a simplistic yet heart-wrenching way. Not to mention the soundtrack is mind-blowing. I put this as a top five of all time for me, and it most definitely deserved best picture in 2016. Parasite. Winner of four Oscars in 2020, Parasite has become the talk of new must-see movies, and it is most definitely well-deserved. Director Bong Joon-ho sets Parasite in current times, tackling the dismantling heaviness of capitalism on two contrasting families. It is a non-stop rollercoaster from start to finish, amazing screenwriting, and impressively orchestrated character development throughout the entire film. When you begin Parasite, Bong Joon-ho sets an expectation for how exactly these two families will be portrayed as, but by the end, your view of each individual character completely changes, and the plot in all ways stems from the loopholes and misconceptions regarding the power of capitalism. 
A Separation This Middle Eastern film, in my own words, is a better version of Marriage Story, the one with the terrible argument scene between Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver. A Separation is a beautifully told story of what it means to live in love, but also disperse in hate. We see the progression of a divorce between a couple, but also the progression of an external feud that leads to charges and even more heartbreak. A Separation won the 2012 Oscar for Best International Film, and I highly recommend watching with another person. It's one of those movies you want to talk about once it ends. And last, but most definitely not least, because this is my favorite film of all time, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Now first, this isn't a film you can just put on, then go on your phone for the rest of the movie. In fact, none of these movies are, but definitely not this one. The Last Black Man in San Francisco tells the true story of Jimmy Fails and his longtime friend Montgomery, or Mont for short. It's simply telling a true story of gentrification, friendship, and black hardship in modern day America. The first scene is the best scene in the entire film in my opinion, and you'll see why once you watch it. The soundtrack, written by Emile Mossery, is probably one of my favorites of all time. It's one of those soundtracks you can listen to and know exactly what's happening without the movie right in front of you. The Last Black Man unfortunately did not get any Oscar nominations, but it won two Sundance Awards in 2019 for a creative collaboration and directing for a U.S. drama. Thank you so much for listening to the third episode of the Mind is Infinite podcast, which is now on Spotify. I actually am very proud and a little bit surprised of all the support I've gotten with this podcast. It's a lot of work, but when you guys text me and repost about it, it simply gives me so much more of a reason to continue this project. I want to thank all the people I interviewed for the first half of the podcast. Gabby, Elijah, Chris, Katie, and Jesse. You are all wonderful people. And I hope you guys loved hearing their thoughts and experiences as much as I did. Also, I had a few more honorable mentions of movies that are absolutely breathtaking in different ways. If Bill Street Could Talk, Black Klansman, Pan's Labyrinth, Dolomite Is My Name, Roma, and The Farewell. A lot of these you can find on streaming platforms like Hulu and Netflix, so you literally have no reason to not watch. Once again, it's been such a pleasure being a part of this space with you, and I'll see you next time.